32 counties. 32 questions. My name is Una. My name is Andrea. And this is United Ireland. United Ireland. Oh God. Um, God, this is going to be a really good podcast, I feel. Yeah, um, not so far, technically so far. Anyway, we usually take a county, dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. We have been talking about the pandemic a lot over the past few weeks, but this week... Bitch, I'm back. I'm popular the man. That's right. It's back to uh, government formation. Um, this is something that obviously everybody, I think we just kind of chose to ignore uh, that we had been left hanging uh, in this endless limbo of government formation. So this is the episode of uh, called The Government No One Asked For. We'll be pouring over the framework document Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael pulled together, and I mean pulled together. And Emma Kerwin is our special guest to dissect the It'll Be Grand coalition. Um, go on. Oh, oh no, you had something to say. I can, I can feel it. Well, well, I was just uh, thinking about how uh, grateful we both are for our brilliant Patreon supporters um, who are really uh, keeping us ticking along uh, in the pandemic. Uh, so thank you very much. Um, do you have any like sales pitch right now, Andrea, that you could make to encourage more people listening to sign up for just three dollars, euro, whatever money is meaningless now because capitalism has fallen a month? Well, let me tell you, the one time I did have a sales job, I sold one ad in six months. So they let me go. I wasn't great at sales. So I don't know if my sales pitch is going to be the winner. But if that is not enough to make you want to sign up, I don't know what is. Agreed. Can you remember what the ad was? It was for a bagel company. It was a radio. And like, they're like, oh my God, brilliant. You sold one ad in six months. Do you think we can keep you on? I was like, like, we really like you, but you're really crap at sales. I was like, I know. Cause usually I'd, they'd be like, you ring and you sell it. And I was like, yeah, but they don't want it. So they're like, yeah, but you sell it to them. I was like, but they don't want it. I did. I didn't make a good salesperson. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're making a much better uh, salesperson for our, um, our Patreon page support, whatever, buying podcast office because we're flying and um, it's great and we've got a bunch of new people supporting us and more would be fantastic. Um, more, I feel like if we get more at some stage in the future, we could actually end up being paid for making this podcast. <laughs> what, <laughs> what do you, do you think? mean paid? What's that mean? <laughs> that would be absolutely stunning. <laughs> How are you feeling this week, Andrea? Do you know what? I am feeling... Absolutely zen, more or less. I kind of had a little speed wobble today. But yeah, I've totally given up the ghost of days gone by and focused on where I am right now. I was watching, um, what did I watch? Passengers. And it was very much like this person surviving on their own. Now this, I, I'm not comparing because it's very grim, but this person surviving on their own on their own little spaceship going to another planet that was 87 years away. Um, on their own and they're like you just have to appreciate what you've got now so I'm very thankful for everything I have now really embracing yoga my garden the sun the birds uh, nature hugging trees namaste I'm totally I'm totally going for the hippie life what about you 
Yeah, I'm really jealous of of what you're experiencing because I think I've just like fallen off. Um, I like haven't been running. I didn't run at all last week. I did no yoga last week. I've just been like on my phone all the time, getting upset, like all of the things that you shouldn't be doing. I've been doing. I think the one thing that um did make a difference was I haven't been able to like watch anything. You see people are watching all these like movies and TV shows and stuff. And I'm just like, I can't like my attention span is so short. Mm. Um, so I was like, I'm going to at least try to achieve to like watch something. So I watched Unorthodox, which I enjoyed. Um, so that was it. And a couple of short films and stuff like that. So I'm hoping that maybe if I can get some good visual, you know, filmmaking, good art into my eyes, then maybe that will help. But yeah, I'm having a real, um, you know, emotional roller coastery week and just being upset. And then I had two margaritas last night and I'm like somehow really hung over today, which I just feel like is physiologically impossible. And as we know, there's no justice in a pandemic hangover at all. Uh. They're just the absolute worst. But we've actually got some tips on this later on, which is absolutely stunning. So maybe we'll be able State to solve of the day. all your problems in one podcast. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> Next up, State of the Nation. Hit me, Andrea. The State of the Nation. <laughs> Quite the state. We are having the ultimate crisis in nursing homes and it's the saddest thing about this awful beast of a virus is that it is overtaking nursing homes and obviously they've been unequipped with PPE and and the ways to make this um, manageable. So we're being hit with astounding numbers of COVID infections in uh, nursing homes around the country and care homes, etc. Is- yeah, I'm wor- working on some little journalism-y related bits on this at the moment. So hopefully I'll have more news to share uh, next week. Um, one of the things that is, is you know, being discussed now is um, in terms of state of the nation stuff is like, you know, how do we transition out of a lockdown and when, you know, what part, how can we end it and what, what parts of it can we open back up society and la la la. I've always thought since the start of this that like, you know, this is a, a disease that doesn't have, you know, particularly effective treatment um, apart from, you know, stuff like oxygen and uh, which is just treating, you know, a secondary infection of pneumonia or whatever and um, doesn't have a vaccine. So like, and you, it's really contagious. So like the, you know, the kind of logic, very simple logic of that is that we won't be able to have like mass gatherings or things like that until there is a vaccine or anything until there's people really, really know what the levels of immunity are. If we have those like antibody tests and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then there's like, you're looking at these conversations or listening to these conversations or reading these stories about like different things that they're doing. Like, well, in Denmark, the kindergartens are going back or like Spain is looking up at like opening different parts of its economy. Um, and there, there won't be a, you know, normality, well, normality was broken anyway, but uh, there'll be a different kind of version of how we live. But just looking at a few different things that are happening then about how Ireland can emerge from this, like interesting story that I saw Downey from CNN share about Facebook cancelling all gatherings of un- 
over like I think 50 people 50 um yeah until June 2021 and now that would chime with the kind of 18 month window for like creating and rolling out a vaccine um and then there's like a couple of other bits that people are talking about in terms of you know hearing different things from some friends around Europe who are working in like the political space shall we say around uh you know, like reduced air travel and basically like nothing's, you know, really going to be opening up in the ways that we know, like the ways that we're used to in terms of like festivals and theater and or like gigs, you know, matches, all that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah. um, Yeah. It depends, I guess, until the rest of the year. And I think there's just going to be a lot of messiness in terms of how how do you figure out how you can socially distance. Um, David McWilliams kind of had a mad article at the weekend about restarting the youth economy. And if young people kind of have immunity, then just let them do stuff. I don't really understand the logic in that. Um, so yeah, I think it's super messy. That's a, so yeah, basically that's where we're at. The messiness of the transition will be very hodgepodge. I feel what do you know? What, other, what, what are your uh, questions about the logic of the David McWilliams article? Well, I think that like the conceit that there is a youth economy is I'm not sure what the youth economy is. Like um a lot of hospitality and things like that have and the beauty industry, let's say, have younger people working in them, but how are you meant to service customers if you can't socially distance? Um, and the other things around like, you know, younger people have like better immunity Families. or whatever. Um, we don't know that, I don't think. And like immunity is very complex because immunity depends on the amount, like anything, it, dep- it depends on the severity of, of the illness that you initially get. So like if you get like a small blast or like small viral load, you know, then your your immunity is not going to be like amazing, even though you will have like antibodies or whatever. Um, and then with regards to like, you know, young younger people aren't isolated in society. Like they don't all just live with each other, you know, like over half of um, 18 to 29 year olds live with their parents. So how do you segment a part of society? And I just don't think that, you know, siloing off populations by demographics and making them do particular work generally works really well. (laughs) Um, So I think that, I I think that like, it's kind of cool to say these things about like, you know, and come up with these like things that sound like they're, you know, thinking outside the box. But really when you dig into it, it's like nothing is going to be you know, similar to what it was in terms of how we operate until there is a vaccine. That's how that's how I feel about it. I don't know if somebody can present an argument that isn't, you know, that that kind of undermines that logic. I know that might sound really super conservative and cautious, but I just don't, I haven't seen anything that doesn't really sound like a very hard to manage shit show that is very arduous to kind of roll out in society. Now, maybe we'll end up having to do that and we'll just have this like really awkward relationship with physical space and with each other. Um, Probably that will be part of it. But, you know, 
I, I just feel like, you know, you have you have a virus, um, loads of people get it. It seems to be quite contagious. It really impacts older people and people with various like other health issues. You know, until you can protect people against that in a uniform way, I don't see how we can roll the dice. You know, I, no that, I mean, you've been my... so upset all week, to be honest. Well, I, I mean, I, I, oh, I, know. I think that we do a lot of magical thinking about stuff. I think there's a lot of cognitive dissonance about it. Um, and like people booking holidays for autumn and stuff like that. It's like, do you really think that all of the borders in Europe are going to be open up? Do you really think that if like Ireland still has COVID cases and the country that you're going to doesn't, you'll be allowed travel to that country? Like, I mean, the, the, I, you know, I just think in practical terms, that's where we're at. But, you know, you, you know, I am like captain cautious and I am quite a worst case scenario person out of pragmatism more than any like, um, pessimism. Like I'm not a, I'm not a pessimistic person, but I just kind of, you know, look at the situation right on and it's like, I just, you know, unless we all start wearing those fucking crazy, um, uh, like bubbly helmet things like we're in the Jetsons hazmats yeah well I mean rave uniform will be uh, back in fashion uh, thankfully um, what's this oh yeah all these shenanigans going on with the press conferences we're just going to stay on COVID for, for another second then get into our main bit but, but all these shenanigans with um, the Trump press conferences I mean obviously outrageous it's, it's so funny because it's like we knew all this stuff already, but it's just like so amplified now. But like, so obviously he tried to pull funding to the World Health Organization and said that they've done just a really bad job at everything. Um, now there is questions over the legality of him pulling that funding and that will play out. Um, but the thing that has really uh, entertained me, which is so silly. It's the small things that make you understand. But uh, the governor of New York, Cuomo's press briefings have been going live on time, etc. And they have become um, a big ratings war for Trump's um, press briefings. And he apparently Cuomo's ones are doing better. But at the same time, there was two things that happened to Trump's ones. Firstly, was there was um, an amazing journalist and I don't have her name written down, who, what you probably know, do you know the journalist who just kept questioning going, and when did you close? And when did you close? And just would not give up. It's like, this is the journalism we've been waiting for, for the last, since he was inaugurated. Um, but then also there was, I yeah, she's I think, from a CBS. Um, what is her name? I think her surname's Reed. Uh, Paula Reed. Paula Reed. Paula Reed. Sorry. Thank you. And then the other thing was, I I just woke up one morning and read this article and sent it to you. And I was like, is this not the most bananas thing you've ever read? There's just so much to unpack in it. And it was about the night before when Trump had held a press conference. And it was fully every single thing that Sarah Kenzier has spoken about for so long in this article. I was like, how have we progressed to a situation where this is actually real life? And this is who is running the country where people... Um, like Trump just going off in these absolute spirals of lack of not reality. I haven't watched them because I can't, I just can't bear him. But I just think like, how has America gotten to this point? Yeah, I guess it's like, I don't know. I just feel with the Trump thing, you know, 
we knew all of this about him and it was just allowed to happen and 60 something million people voted for him and I don't know it's like that Brecht is it Brecht that quote like as the crimes pile up they become invisible you know the more like the worse someone is the more they get away with and eventually you just have to turn away because it's so monstrous um I think like what the fuck is going to happen to America this year because obviously they're now the epicenter of the crisis how can the primary still run how can the convention still run will their election happen like it's all up in the air and then you look at like 22 million I think it is now people on um, job benefits or whatever and that like the highest ever was like in 1982 or 1987 or something at like 800 and something thousand <laughs> it's so wild it's bananas no Andrea someone would say bananas and that person is me <laughs> <laughs> back home what is happening uh, Mary Lou tested positive for COVID which means well does it mean she's now immune and can run the country on her own? Um, <laughs> there are questions over whether once you've had it, you are immune um, because more and more people are getting it for a second time. So one of my friends had it and was quite, and we discussed this in the last podcast about how if you did, didn't have it you'd be trying you wouldn't be trying to get it but like how if you didn't have it you would be at a disadvantage because you wouldn't have the immunity whereas now it, we're seeing more cases of people uh, getting it twice so that actually doesn't stop mm, or it being dormant and then re-emerging or something I don't know it's weird isn't it yeah we just we just don't know is really all we can say about this at the moment really isn't it indeed and now it's time for the corona correction First what's up, the corona correction this week one this uh, one of our listeners sent this in and was like in good news at least the white white water rafting uh, can't really go ahead anymore delighted can it not can it not well I suppose well, I like, can't could you spend all that money on uh, a lazy river I know it's not a lazy river but essentially yeah. <laughs> I guess if it's already been committed to it I mean there's going to yeah but if they haven't started I suppose they'll look at all capital spending and just be like we have no money we'll have to stop all this stuff we've no money um, we've no houses we've nowhere for everyone to live but let's build our lazy river in the docks I know maybe what else is going on uh, the people of Punjab are seeing the Himalayas for the first time. So it's kind of amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. Um, and it really, I am not going to go off on a wide ranging limb here and say that since this has happened, we have never had weather like this in April before in my memory. And this weather is the weather I remember from when I was growing up. And it just mm. feels a bit spooky that it's just been so mm. gorgeous since everything shut down. There's like, yeah, I think I think this like you're on to something there, but because I know you're talking last week, which I kept thinking about about all these echoes of childhood, you know, like in terms of people being at their front doors and all that kind of stuff, and the weather is totally part of that, isn't it? A hundred percent. I've never, I can't remember weather like this since I was a child. Now I know that's very anecdotal and I don't have any research into it, but I'm going to go with that the weather has definitely been impacted by COVID. 
Well, I yeah, I mean, like, I had been noticing the last couple of years that the air quality in Dublin was quite poor. Like there was often this haziness in the evening and I it was it was weird. I couldn't kind of put my um, finger on it. And now you're just like the skies are so clear at night um, in Dublin City. Anyway, it's un- incredible. Um, but this this thing of like um, what's happening in India, like people in um, uh, the Punjab region, like being able to see uh, the the nearby him not nearby, but like it's big, so you can see it. Um, the Himalayas, uh, first time in in over thirty years. It's so sad in a way. Like all oh, this massive, majestic mountain range was like in view, but like toxic car fumes had erased it. Um, so that's kind of amazing. The Guardian had this really cool thing of like before and after pictures of in, of India in terms of the air pollution and like, gee, I've never traveled to India, but I've been in um, Nepal on the border uh, on the, and uh, actually like, see, yeah, seeing the Himalayas, like just looking at those photos of seeing the Himalayas, I remember being on this like really ropey internal flight in Nepal going to the Indian border and I looked out the plane window and the mountains were like the same height as the plane. It was incredible. So um, hopefully that view will stay for a long time. But for now, we are going back into limbo. It's government formation and the main meat of our episode. This is the government no one asked for. The transition from a caretaker government to a real one continues with the inevitable merger of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. And in what is probably the most unpopular choice for the electorate and the government no one asked for, the Ross of Rachel of Irish politics, if you will, finally dropped the charade and got together. Um, and with a freaked out population looking for stability, like I can't cope with the amount of Instagrams I've seen of like, they're just the best that have suddenly flipped. It's so bananas. But has the opportunity then for a left-wing government been lost? Does the pandemic change absolutely everything after the election changed everything itself? Are we going back in time? What is time? Are these my legs? Joining us to discuss this weird moment in Irish politics is artist Emma Kirwan. He's an actor, a poet, a screenwriter, a playwright, and basically an all-round buzzer. But first, what is in the framework document? Uh, we read it, so you don't have to. I'd heard this described on in the media as a very thin document. It's 22 pages. It's not really 22 pages. There is a lot of white space in this document. A lot of pages with like a few lines at the top and then just the empty page. And it is a pretty large uh, typeface. But going through it forensically, as we do at United Ireland, it starts with the pan pandemic um, and talking about, you know, unprecedented times. And it's kind of weaving in the rhetoric of how we're coping during a pandemic. You know, sacrifices have to be made by all for the greater good and the rhetoric of how we'll live in a new world. Like we know that there is no going back to the old way of doing things, along with the rhetoric 
that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have kind of been building during uh, and since the election, certainly in the second half of the election campaign for Fine Gael anyway. So Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael framing themselves as agents of change, um, which is obviously laughable and, you know, kind of evokes some of that Fianna Fáil stuff uh, during the election. You know, no, we're the party of change. Definitely. We are definitely about change. Um, it says things about building a government that lasts, which is very much kind of rooted in, in power and, and maintaining power. Um, um, focus on well-being. Again, we've got this confluence of uh, pandemic rhetoric and the quality of life uh, stuff uh, crossover there. So there's 10 points. Um, reigniting uh, and renewing the economy, hopefully not setting the economy on fire. Uh, reigniting and renewing the economy, universal health care, which is, of course, Social Democrats' uh, slunge care policy, housing for all uh, left-wing policy, a new social contract, the kind of thing Labour have been talking about a lot, a new Green Deal, uh, obviously Green Party policy, a better quality of life for all, very much, again, in the whole kind of sock dem uh, Labour vibe, supporting young Ireland. This is obviously because Fianna Fáil Fianna Gael are terrified about how young people are voting for Sinn Féin and opportunities through education research and a share Island, uh, talking about a united Ireland as opposed to united Ireland. Again, obviously Sinn Féin uh, hat tip there. And then at the heart of Europe, global citizenship. It's kind of moving more into the kind of uh, social democratic uh, pro-EU space uh, that parties such as Sock Dems occupy. So overall, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil basically casting the net as wide as possible, um, which is a type of populism towards both people and other parties because they need to bring people in to form government so that they can get their way. And basically kind of wearing the skin of other parties, um, like in Cats or that Roald Dahl uh, short story from Switch Bitch. Do you remember that one where there was like a guy who like skinned people? Was he a tattooist? <laughs> and then he like made lamps. That's how is I this, feel about this. Is this the first time political uh, policy has been likened to Cats? I think so. <laughs> uh, I think so. Um, so you have like throughout the document don't be confused that there are any ideas in here that are kind of new or um, surprising you know basically most of it is just shit that any government does or that exists like in society in public service very milk toast very norm core goals and statements very boring and um, so we're just going to pick out some bits uh, on the economy, talking about a vibrant private sector, pro-enterprise, attracting foreign direct investment, identifying post-COVID world economic growth proteins. I presume, is that meat or 3D printing fucking impossible burgers? I don't know. Uh, cloud computing, medical technology. We're just going to pick out some of the surprising bits because as you can imagine, all of it is just full of the stuff that already happens and like bland aspirations about how society should be run. On universal healthcare, that's basically uh, just to launch a care. Housing for all, promising bold action, uh, reduce homelessness, reduce the cost of land, uh, which I think the global depression will probably handle in due course uh, and maybe have a referendum on that. Uh, that's kind of random. Um, a new deal for renters. Uh, basically, all the housing stuff is pretty poor in it. Uh, social contract. And this is really, really like, you know, ineffectual language that's kind of peppered throughout this document. Acknowledge the importance of carers in our society. You know, what is that? Just going, yes, I have acknowledged that. I have acknowledged they are important. Now I'm moving on. Um, a lot of stuff by parenting and the social contract bit, you know, childcare, parental leave. 
domestic violence, which is a term that I kind of hate. Uh, it's, you know, just violence against women, I kind of minimise it sometimes. And of course, men. Um, a new Green Deal is another of the points. Uh, we know that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael don't care about green issues. There's no point really going into this bullshit green baiting stuff. Hopefully the Green Party don't fall for it, but they might. Repeated here is the 44 million new trees by 2040. Um Go back and listen to our uh, Leitrim podcast on trees. You might enjoy that. Um, that was already uh, announced. Um, as an aside, Andrea, did you know that Ethiopia planted 350 million trees in one day last year? I actually did. It was an, uh, a call out they did for everyone to plant a tree on the same day. It's amazing. It's not unreal. Yeah, it's fab. In the be- a better that was quality a really, of That life. was very not like enthusiastic at all. It was like, yeah, yeah, cool. Heard that already. <laughs> <laughs> it is it's absolutely well, unbelievable I think you are you are V knowledgeable on trees in fairness to you um, I'm growing the, a, my better, own oak just FYI oh yeah how's it going yeah it's growing and are you going to keep it planted in a pot I have these like fears of like you planting it in your garden and then the oak taking over and then you'd have to cut it down I'd be so sad well not to go into it, but I'm in limbo, so I actually don't have my home, but we'll go into that in another day. So I'm not, it's in a plant, in a pot for now, to be discussed okay, at a later date. <laughs> okay, grant. Um, in the a better quality of life for all part of the document, there's stuff about broadband, dereliction, support community groups, and this is my fave, recognise the role of the arts. Uh, and it's, it's the start of one of the sentences and it's like, and culture and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, again, you know, what do you do? Yes, I recognise the role of the arts. Okay, now, next. Um, su- supporting Young Arle- Ireland is a... Uh, um, part, sorry, I just, this is the part where I've just gone like, oh, whatever. Uh, you know, supporting Young Ireland, you know, okay, the people who just really don't like uh, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael. Housing, a new youth strategy, and the stuff about mental health and addiction. I, I'm, It's funny, I don't know how those are just youth issues. Um then we have opportunities through education and research, invest in research and development, apprenticeships, blah, blah. A shared island. <clears throat> so they're talking about establishing a unit in the Thetix office to work towards a consensus on a united island and continue to mark the decade of centenaries in an inclusive, appropriate and sensitive manner. Uh, because Finnegan was doing that so well just before the election. And then there's a little bit on global citizenship, you know, rec- rec- we recognising that Ireland is indeed a country and that country is in the world on planet Earth. No, it's, it's, it's basically as non- nonsense as that, you know. Let's keep being friends with America. We love the EU. Ooh, boo, is Israeli-Palestinian conflict is bad. Let's support a two-state solution for that. Anyway. That is all of that crack. So uh, here's a question I have for you, though. Don't you know mm-hmm. the way I kind of feel like they uh, is there a possibility that they're after absorbing all the feedback that they've been given? And remember when we were talking about the election, you were saying that whilst Fina Gale spent the whole time talking about what everyone else was doing, they never or what they weren't doing. They never spoke about what they were actually doing. So kind of they lost yeah. their their voice as a party of what they stood for and what they were. So is it a possibility, does it feel like they might be just have learned from what their shortcomings are and are looking to improve themselves as a party? Am I being an optimistic queen here? Well, I think that it's, it's kind of about, does it matter? It's kind of a means to an end thing, right? 
So does it matter that they are basically pitching other people's policies in order to gain power with the end result that some of those policies may get implemented, also exposing that they don't really have any policies of their own that people care about, or that they've somehow, you know, become enlightened overnight and have decided that they're, you know, pseudo kind of centre left as opposed to centre right. Um, It is a, this document is a, you know, kind of deliberately abstract um, and very elastic in order to allow other parties to copy and paste their policies into it so that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael can get into government. Mm. And this is all about like getting into government, getting into power and maintaining that status quo. Um, so, you know, you, you, you like... I suppose that this is what the document is about, but it's 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 kind of mind boggling that um they But if they did get back into power with this with these new policies that they've that have that bring them to a more left wing government, are we we have the stability then of um parties who've been in power since the beginning of time with the new open minded left wing uh beliefs? Is that some? Am I just? Am I? Well, I think that I grasping. think stability. I think stability is a misnomer. Like there, there has been no stability with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. They present themselves as the adults in the room because they look a certain way, they speak a certain way, they act a certain way. But there's no stability for like poor people under Fine Gael, and there was no economic stability under Fianna Fáil because they crashed the economy. So I, I think that, like I, I. I think now it's, that they've implemented all the emergency measures for COVID, they can't go back and say where they are saying, well, people can't live on 220 a week. They have to have 350. Now it's mm. like, how can you go back then? So there's almost these policies that they will have to look at and change. And will that then bring us to a better place in terms of the government we have? Yeah, potentially. Like, I mean, obviously they, you know, as kind of we were talking about before, like good ideas in a crisis are good ideas outside of a crisis. And the reason that they had to grasp straight away at like universal healthcare, you know, well, I think the private hospitals thing is kind of weird because initially seemed like kind of taking them over, but now it's like a business deal or whatever. But utilizing private hospitals, free childcare, you know, bump up welfare, all these kind of things are like, yeah, this is because this is good shit. Like these are good ideas. Um, yeah, I think it will be like mad for them to have to roll that back. Like, how do you turn around to parents who are now unemployed and be like, oh, yeah, you know, that childcare we are subsidizing, you have to pay for it now. Oh, yeah. And that 350 euro you, you were on, it's now like 203 euro or whatever. So, yeah, they're going to be up against it. Um, so let's take this convo uh, to Emmett Kerwin, who has always good things to say. Emmett's here to lay down the law. Uh, Emmett, what did you make of um, that framework document? Yeah, well, it's just kind of, I think we've been chatting about this before and I think everybody was the same. <clears throat> Nobody, I think even from Fine Gael was going to jump up and down to defend it. It was it's new speak. Um, it's boardroom words, you know. Now I understand it is, and some people have 
uh, defended it by saying it is a discussion document, but it's kind of like Venus flytrap, you know, for left-wing parties. It's wishy-washy language that has or lacks complete specificity uh, to lure people in. And that's, you know, it's even at the business post saying that, like the word lure, um, to get them in kind of and, and remaining as ambiguous on all of these points as possible to the point of almost absurdity. I mean, uh, you know, it, there's, there's things in it about real accountability. You know, you have to ask yourself, well, what did we have before? Do we have unreal accountability like it just doesn't make any sense like do you when when it feels that uh we've been in this really weird space obviously for obvious reasons there's a plague happening um but post-election um everybody was talking about this kind of the, the very cynical trajectory of government formation which is like you know these two parties will say they won't go in together even though they're effectively in you know propping each other up in the in the previous government and then they'll just shadow box for a while and then a couple of months down the line they'll they'll say you know this is a groundbreaking coalition of two civil war parties and uh, we're going to do it for the good of the nation for stability la 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 in the meantime this um pandemic happens no Nobody cares about, you know, government formation for the most part. Like, I think most people uh, don't re- aren't really thinking about it. It falls off the agenda completely. You have this limbo caretaker government who, you know, in many respects are doing a good um, management job of the situation. Um, and obviously there's loads of other stuff uh, that maybe not necessarily so. But is, is this kind of, would you perceive this as kind of a... a a bit of a, not dangerous maybe is too strong, but how people revert back to wanting quote unquote stability, even though we just had an election that wholeheartedly rejected in many ways, these two parties. Yeah, I think it's funny, you know, because Fine Gael are a party which they would resist the expansion of the state and they resist the role of the state in a lot of things. So the curtailing of freedoms is kind of antithetical to their political ideology, um, as it should be for all parties. But I, I think, you know, they were really, you could see that they didn't want to do the the, the guard enforced or legislative, um, <clears throat> go down the legislative route in order to curtail movement around the country. But it's funny because a lot of people who would vote for Fine Gael are the ones that are actually calling for this, you know what I mean? So it seems kind of out of step with, they, they want somebody to step in, you know? Um, I don't know necessarily if another left-wing party was to do the same thing, that the, the, those legislative kind of processes would have been welcomed as much, you know, if they didn't come from a party like Fine Gael, I'm not sure. We just missed, yeah. what, 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 were, what were you saying at the end of that sentence there, Emmett? Sorry, you just dropped out for a sec. Um, I was just saying, you know, I don't necessarily know if these same curtails on freedom of movement around the country um, would have been as welcome if they had to come from another party, you know? Mm. People people in times of, of crisis need strong leadership, so they look to leadership to guide them. And there's something about kind of feeling um, safe in that. And, you know, but I don't think the criteria for kind of that safety, the criteria for, you know, we should, it's false equivalence to kind of like match them against two other leaders like Trump or, you know, Johnson, who... Are failing a business, you know what I mean. Yeah. Like we should want um, ability in public office, in high office. If someone is a leader, they should be there by, you know, their intellect and merit. You know what I mean. Like so, that they they should be uh, able to do this uh, soundly, as most leaders in most liberal democracies have been able to do. So you know, mm. but um, but, you know, people do want change. They did. They did want change, and I think 
that people that didn't vote for Fine Gael in the last election that maybe voted for left-wing parties, they're not going to vote for them again. But I do think that Fine Gael will probably cannibalise a lot of Fianna Fáil's, you know, right-of-centre voters uh, in the next election. You use the word change a lot there in terms of what people wanted. Do you think because the pandemic has changed everything, is there a possibility that it has changed Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and has their adoption of left-wing policies may actually be for real or is it just to the paragraph that we're seeing? I, yeah, no I, don't, I don't, no, I don't think it's for real at all. I think they've adopted the policies and even people in their own party and even their own voters have said, you know, as the doc- document said, they haven't actually, they haven't changed their stripes and they haven't just all of a sudden become a left-wing party. They're doing what they did after the local elections in 2018. They're starting to adopt things like green policies, but there are always policies that have their own flavour to them. You know, they, they still talk about, it's all aspirational. They will, uh, putting sustainability at the heart of a fiscal policy enterprise, an innovation policy. You know, as Carl Kinsella said like in, in an article, like what in, policy should be innovative, like, but you can just use that word without actually having any specificity. You know, there's, I don't think there's any change in what they've done. There's something we were talking, I'm just looking at the document here, but there's something we kind of found really, um, really striking about it, you know. It's kind of that thing of reading between the lines of what, what are they actually saying. Now, I know this is still just the discussion document we're talking about here. It was number eight in that document that says, tackling endemic sources of disadvantages in communities and developing solutions which break the cycle. It goes further back to this kind of, it's a real Thatcher kind of, you know, turn of phrase, breaking the cycle or the poverty trap. Nowhere in that does it say tackling the endemic sources of disadvantages. The endemic sources of disadvantages in any society are poverty. So instead of actually just saying, we're going to eradicate poverty, we are going to lift everybody up not just a republic of opportunity, which is the thing they keep on pushing, this kind of idea of the meritocracy. What they should be pushing for is the, you know, a republic of uh, outcomes, you know. Um, they want the same outcomes for everybody because not everybody can start at the same level. But it also, this kind of thing, there's a really telling thing in the language. Now, look, again, this language is, is purposely vague, lacks absolute specificity. So, you have to read through the lines because you go, well, what do you mean by that? So I could say this now and they could easily say, no, we didn't mean that. But what I take from it is, which break the cycle. They feel, and there is this kind of amongst many people in Fine Gael, that there is a, an intergenerational dependence on welfare. And even if that does exist, it could do. They never talk about solid numbers of how many people are actually, you know, intergenerationally dependent on welfare from grandparents, parents to children. But that idea permeates with them. So their kind of idea is that there are people who are living in poverty, who are living in poverty by choice because they can't get out of the cycle because they think it's better not to work. But if we, before this election, were almost approaching full employment, then how much is that a part of the problem? You know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> Nearly everybody was working. Do you know what I mean? So it doesn't ring true even with their own uh, fiscal, you know, fiscal outcomes and what they've achieved uh, with, with you know, full employment, which was a good achievement. You know what I mean? But so again, it just reads as somebody trying to overhaul the social welfare system. And again, what I fear is that after this, the crisis, because we are going to be in a new uh, place financially, um, they are going to use the way they hid behind the fiscal rules, um, the European fiscal rules prior to 2018. They're going to basically try and overhaul the welfare system again in a way that disproportionately hurts people who need it the most. 
Mm. You know, sometimes, Emma, when you talk about, um, you know, the the ideological roots of, of this kind of yeah. vagueness, um, you know, you're, you're reading into things that are very obvious to you and that are very obvious to other people and oftentimes don't even seem to be obvious to the architects of this kind of stuff. Like I'm, as you're talking there about, you know, the semantics of certain terminology that is rooted in very like neoliberal anti-society um yeah. you know, Reagan Thatcher rhetoric uh I'm reminded of the appearance that you made on RTE uh I think it was the night one of one of the nights of the endless election count and I think Neil yeah. Richmond uh, TD was on with you and you were saying like well this is what you guys do and blah 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 and he was like kind of personally um affront- affronted yeah. not to, you know to that, kind that of personal somebody- rich- yeah, and it was actually a really nice moment at the end when you guys kind of like made up and stuff. Um, yeah. But but I, what what I'm interested in is like, do you think that by reading in, uh, by having like a critical lens on this stuff and, and and looking into it from, you know, an intellectual perspective and, you know, political science perspective even or whatever philosophical yeah. perspective that you're giving them too much credit, that basically that this is just like, this is just bland shit that we say, you know, words, like, words. Yeah, like I, yeah, you know, disclaimer with all of these things, it is, these are just <laughs> the, the yeah, murmurings, of, is that the word, of a, of, a, of, a, of a person who's a writer. Do you know what I mean? I'm not a political scientist, I'm not an economist, so they are just kind of the way I see things and all of your, your opinions are kind of forged by your experiences. Sorry, I don't know if you got that, did you? Yeah, yeah, I got you that. There? Yeah, go on. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. Your experiences are, sorry, your opinions are forged by your experiences, they're forged by your background, they're forged by the thing that you do even for a living. So I don't think that any, I don't think that most, you know, most of these kind of politicians do see themselves as doing this, um, they're, you know, they're putting, how do I say this? I don't, I think that these politicians are acting a lot of the time in good faith because they believe their own narrative because everybody tells themselves, you're, you're so, you know, your psyche protects itself by telling itself a narrative that essentially sees everything that it does as being okay. But if you were told constantly in your family and uh, the political organization that you joined as a child or that you've always been part of for life, if you're told these kind of canards of political thinking about like welfare uh, dependency, you believe them because the people that you're talking to quite a lot of the time are very smart. But if you dig into the numbers sometimes, you go, well, actually, is that true? So the, the, the ability to be critical of the political ideology that you've grown up in can be so disastrous, not only for you, the politician, but also for the party. So they never changed tack. They continually kept going with this market ideology that the market will correct itself. It will sort everything out but actually we see that it, the market was never going to sort it out we had to wait till the market collapsed for example as it has done the the airbnb market for there to be an influx of now it's not huge but it is sizable of apartments that are available in uh, mainly in, in in city centers like galway and cork and dublin so you know even when we can see that airbnb is a problem it's antithetical to tell a property owner, if you are a member of Fianna Gael, what they can and can't do with their property. Because they themselves, a lot of the time, are property owners, and they find repugnant the idea of the state telling anybody what to do with the thing that they own. Um, but, you know, so they hide behind the Constitution constantly. 
but they're using the constitution essentially as the prop of their own ideology again. And then when the COVID crisis happens, all of a sudden they use the they use the constitution. It wasn't full constitution, you know. And we can't we can't do that because of the constitution. Then the COVID crisis happens, and they say, oh, actually no, we can't because now it's a crisis. So you kind of ask, well, what was ten thousand people homeless? That wasn't a crisis, you know. But um, I don't know. Yeah, I think a lot of the time as well. I'm kind of coming at it from a point of view, like especially with this document as a writer and as a person who sees kind of the mangling of language, especially in politics, I'm really, they, they, they use very unpalatable kind of things. A lot of the, uh, they use very, they use palatable language to make the unpalatable palatable, palatable if that makes sense. So like even Ragger brought in this thing called uh, the lifetime community rating. Now, I don't know what that is. I, that doesn't mean anything. And it's the same with using the words like vibrant and dynamic. You know, a rock could be dynamic. Rivers can be vibrant. You know what I mean? It means nothing in politics. They're words that are empty. But that thing, the community lifetime writing, that was a, a fine that was put on you as a person when you reached 35 if you hadn't yet taken out private insurance. So essentially our government was fining us for not entering into a contract with a company, not the government, not even the state, but a private company, we were being fined for every year that we don't take out private health insurance. So if I'm like, as I am now, over 35, for every year, there's a year on year increase in health. So when I get my health insurance, hopefully sometime in the future, uh, I will have paid a penalty, but the penalty will be have, will have been, you know, covered with this wishy-washy corporate language of community lifetime rating. Community is good rating it's like a credit rating so you're what you're being penalized by your community for not having a good insurance rating it's nonsense and you know the same thing with the universal uh, social what was the, mm. what's the usc i can't remember what it stands for universal you know, social charge yeah yeah you know it doesn't universal social charge it all just goes into the same taxation it's not like this charge is earmarked for specific health spending or anything like that it just all goes into the same thing so it's you know it's the language means nothing after a while it all kind of starts to wash together in this, um, you know, just melange of like words, like, you know, word soup that means absolutely nothing. And, you know, we have an ambition to look after the, the environment. That's not the same as putting something in the constitution that ties every government on this island for the next 30 years to reducing carbon emissions or protecting biodiversity. It doesn't mean anything. It's just yeah maybe we'll get around to it possibly not so as a person as a writer i kind of i find it kind of fascinating you know there's another thing as well like you know departments always overspend they're never underfunded you know because overspending gives an idea which is very like you know which is much loved by kind of right-wing politicians that that a lot of the time overspend happens uh, because of bloated middle management you know we need the efficiency of the private market uh but underfunding that is a word that gives you kind of images of, you know, uncaring politicians that just don't believe in giving money to the appropriate services in order to get the services that you want or that we need as a country, you know? What do you say to all the people who are coming out of this? And like, I've had so many conversations with people about government formation and what we've been going through. And they're like, well, I didn't really like Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil before, but I'm so glad to have had them during this crisis and I wouldn't have wanted anyone else. Like, is there a basis in that of the stability that they're providing or is that a fake um, 
image of support that they're getting from all the experts who are who are actually managing this with the with the with the grand speeches that are being given like we're in independence day well it's yeah i think you know the thing about good bureaucracy is that it works in the background and you don't see it and for the first time really and and i applaud them for this they are listening to the hsc um they're doing what they say, you know what I mean? So that's something to be applauded in a lot of ways. And we can talk about the, the new housing um, uh, document they brought out, actually, which does have a few more kind of specifics in it in a minute. Um, there is something in there that kind of like is heartening. But I think, what uh, you know, what they're doing at the moment, I think what happens is people need, um, they need to be confident in their leaders. And if you put forward that confidence or that, um, that image, people find it reassuring, especially in a time when you figure out that the world isn't as stable as you think it is. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to, like, if people feel that way about a party, you know, that's okay. Um, you know, everybody in a time of crisis has the right to feel safe and, has, and should feel safe in, in the hands of their leaders. But um, I don't know, you know, I don't know. I, I think if people feel that way about the party right now, they probably would have voted for either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael anyway. You know what I mean? I, I don't think anyone that voted for left-wing parties is really going to vote for them now post-crisis, you know. I wouldn't be so sure about that, Emmett. I think a lot of yeah. people who who were flipping um, or voting for the first time or, you oh, know, like, or going along with um, the stuff that their peers were saying around like, no, we need change or people who like flipped, pe- people who flipped from Fine Gael to Sinn Féin. You know, I, th- I think that that you know, I think yeah. that they'll, they'll definitely come out of this more popular than they went into the general election. Oh, absolutely. And listen, again, you know, caveat, I could be wrong about all this. I suppose a lot of the time we live in our own kind of bubbles. I, I suppose the people that I would, you know what I mean, like people that I would hang around with like that I know just would never, you know, they'd be just kind of, they would never vote for them. So, I, yeah, I'm not too sure. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not really too sure about kind of, but I think you're dead right. They definitely will come out more popular, but I think, in terms of people that would have voted for Fine Gael, that voted for Fianna Fáil in the last election, those people will just go back to Fine Gael. Um, mm. I, didn't know the, I didn't know there was people that went from Fine Gael to Sinn Féin, like too many of them. Um, obviously, there must have been uh, for the, the kind of result that they had. But, um, you know, I don't know those figures or, you know, even anecdotally, like talking to people, I haven't met anyone that's done that, you know. Yeah. I, was re- I was reading an article the other day about that leaders during a crisis come out much more popular post-crisis, but there's always a huge dip then afterwards once re- whatever reality is sets back in again and they have to deal mm. with the kind of all the stuff that happens then because of the crisis. Yeah, t- yeah, I think that, yeah, that's funny. They get the little bump and then when their people realise that their politics are still the same, go, oh, hang on a minute, we hate you. Um, but uh, Emmett, I was wondering, what did you make of um, all of the, the various uh, quote unquote supports that were coming out of the Department of Culture and Jacifa Madigan and stuff like that? There, there, there is a, there's a huge kind of problem with arts spending uh, anyway, and there always has been. And, you know, Fine Gael have kind of been really antithetical to it all the way through any government that they served in, um, they made a commitment around the time that Varadkar was uh, running for the leadership. And so did Simon Coveney. Both of them said how important the arts were. And they promised a 7% increase year on year. But they didn't do that. But ultimately as well, the arts ministry is something usually that's seen as a kind of an entry level uh, ministerial position or else an exit ministerial position. But their handling of the arts 
Minister Manning doesn't actually have any advisors from the arts. And that's something the National Campaign for the Arts said. That would be akin to being in the financial ministry and having no uh, economists advising you. It doesn't make any sense. They have people who work in PR firms and work in sales and things like that that are working in there. They don't have any advisors. Nobody with an arts background is working in the arts ministry to advise the minister. But maybe even, you know, Enda Kenny has uh, Fieke McAneil and uh, Bertie Ahern had Fieke McAneil, the ex-artistic director of uh, the Abbey, advising them. Um, so what happens is you get, again, this business-first model approach to the arts where instantaneously they go to a private company in order to fund everything. Um, it kind of goes deeper into the, the setting up of things like Creative Ireland, you know. Um, I don't really understand why we need to artistic bodies like that on an island. So there's already the Arts Council. And John O'Donoghue said prior to this, the previous Arts Minister, governments really shouldn't want anything to do with the arts. They should give the money and fund it, absolutely. But to use it as a as a tool of advertising for the country or to use it as a tool of generating tourism for the country, that's what happens to us as artists. We continually have to validate ourselves and how much money we give to the economy. And ultimately, the cultural capital that we create rarely results in financial capital for us. You know, somebody's making financial capital from it. Um, somebody can go to you know, a hotel or a pub when they come over for big things like the gathering in 2013 or the 2016 um, celebrations. And what happened was Fine Gael seen that and they went, oh, right, this is brilliant. You know, the arts actually is a way of generating uh, money within the economy. It's not just. And I think they cottoned on to that and they were going to, you know, try and give more funding. So they set up Creative Ireland. But ultimately now, you know, it hasn't done the job it's going to do. And what happens with, when they when they set up these institutions, I feel, this isn't the case with the Arts Council, but I feel with things like Creative Ireland, mm. it's kind of like a co-opting of the artistic community to become part of the sales pitch to sell Ireland to international audiences, to, mm. tell, to tell the world that austerity and austerity policies have worked. We're open for business. Everything has worked. Um, and, you know, it's the thing that gives us soft power all over the world. And uh, Kenny and I did this thing for called Pay the Artist. They did a kind of spoken word piece for the Arts Council a few weeks ago. And they mentioned that Enda Kenny gave Barack Obama uh, a book of children's folklore written by Pork Column. And it was based on Hawaiian folk fairy tales. It is a brilliant thing to give to President Obama, who's from Hawaii. So Enda Kenny, uh, uh, a professor in, in Trinity, found this book, gave it to the arts minister at the time. Um, Enda Kenny went and gave it to the Obamas. Beautiful kind of thing. So instantaneously, he gains this kind of political capital from doing that. And cultural, like from our cultural capital. But they really, they see the importance of our arts on the world stage and the kind of soft power it gives us. But they're just not willing to pay for it. So... Yeah. And, you know, even like they, they, they promised to release that arts documents that was going to take us up to 2025. They released it this year. <laughs> it just, it's, you know, it's, it's about the, the aims that they have for the arts. So it hasn't done it. I think, look, the thing is with the arts, the NCFA, and now obviously all kind of all bets are off really with the arts. Like we will, that will be cut again um, and it'll be savaged. And yeah, artists are in a really precarious place at the moment because if they, you know, getting work was difficult back then and getting it now is going to be 
getting paid for it. You're going to go back into this world where we're essentially being asked to pay and work for nothing. But, you know, everybody at that gig gets paid from the doorman all the way up to the guy in the office. But usually the, the barman, the security guard, but usually the artist up on the stage, you know, isn't paid nothing, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting uh, moment, especially because like everybody's going to want to want art, like to quote unquote yeah. consume art, to view art, to engage with art. Yet, you know, obviously, if you look at something like film, television industry, pretty much every production has has halted. Um, and it's going to be a mad thing that I think that there's actually going to be a lot of money uh in the demand for art, yes. you know, in terms of gigs and all that kind of stuff. So how in the meantime, can artists kind of organize to make sure that the slice of the pie that they get is the biggest slice as it, as it should be? And there's big questions about, you know, uh, unionizing further in Ireland anyway, I think that need to be looked at from for artists. But um, how are you feeling generally about this moment before we let you go? Just to pick up on that point you made there about the artist unions, Jessie Jones, the artist is at that uh, Arts Council um, event, and she said, you know, yeah. we need we need a union that um, is for all artists. Not you know, actors have equity and stuff like that, but we need a union for all artists and the ability to collect a bargain um, for a society that necessarily consumes the work that you make, but doesn't always want to pay for it until it comes in a shiny package like you know Netflix or an RT series. So. One of the things about the crisis in, in terms of art, people will consume more, but there's a disconnect. And I know people in the arts know this between reading a book, listening to a podcast, watching a TV series and watching a film and other arts, sculpture, paintings, plays, theatre, poetry, other types of literature. So if you can tell people, well, look, if you don't pay for it through state aid, all artists, when they start out, need development. They don't just become good uh, from the word go. So this is one thing I'll leave you, one example. Stuart Carolyn, for example, who wrote Love Hate. Love Hate's one of the most popular television shows um, ever in Irish television um, in Ireland. Stuart Carolyn wrote uh, Defender of the Faith, which was a play that went on in the Abbey. So they would have developed him as a writer, as a playwright, back in like the 2000s. Then he wrote another play for Druid Theatre um, maybe a few years later. So he was continually being developed through state aid and state money by organizations and cultural institutions that were bringing him in and bringing him under their wing. Then he went on to write Love Hate, which might be the first time that a lot of people in the wider general public came into contact with his art. So if you told them no Love Hate would exist without actually giving money into the arts and finding the new Stuart Carroll, there might be a kind of better argument to make because when they think of the arts, there's a disconnect. They think that's for other people, not me. But arts is everything that is consumed artistically so if we can kind of make that connect between the two so hopefully one of the things that comes out of it is people will start to read more start to diverge in their tastes from the things that they like um, and start trying on new things and you know hopefully uh, consuming more and more Irish art uh, so if they can and we can make that case for why artists because if, if not what happens is you have a barren point so there's a lot of artists like uh, who received a lot of funding from the 90s and then in the early 2000s during the Celtic Tiger years, they all then came to fruition in the austerity years, making great art with not a lot of money, but they had been developed by companies. But if we get another hit, then there will be, have been no real funding for these younger artists who are teenagers in the, the recession, 
who are in their 20s now and the artists who are teenagers now who will be in their 20s in the next decade. You know, ultimately, they will do art because our good art always comes true. But the support networks and the ability to pay food and put, you know, put food on the table and pay rent, if they can't do that, you know, they can't make art. So we will lose a whole generation of artists simply because art cannot survive in the private market. Um, and that's why we see is a state subvention. We can't track whether or not art does things like, you know, lower crime, uh, makes people happy. You can't track whether or not if you give a kid a paintbrush at the age of 15, he didn't go down the wrong path or he did. It's untrackable. You know what I mean? These things are, they're, um, they're, they're, they, you know, they don't have form. You know what I mean? You can't put it on a Google spreadsheet. So it's very hard to make the case to capitalists about the importance of art, making people happier, social cohesion, community cohesion. Those things are very hard to argue for uh, when you're looking at people who are, you know, economists who just don't see the point of it. They just see that artists mm. would do it anyway. So, mm. Well, hopefully, um, because we have lots of time to think um, that that there will be a, a lot of uh, new thinking coming out of this. And, and I think people are really realising the importance of yeah. um, the therapeutic quality of art um, but thanks so much for joining us, Emmett. I really appreciate no it. Yeah, yeah. And I'll see you on the other side. I'll see you on the other side. Talk to you soon, guys. Bye. Bye. Now we are about to get in the sea. Uh, this week we are putting, I think it's a bigger picture. It's not just the company, but I think the idea of Keelings and uh, the flying in of 189 people to pick uh, strawberries. And the words that were used in the statement of why this would happen is it would be impossible to bring fresh Irish strawberries to the Irish market without doing this. Now, there is questions over, okay, well, why are they getting in the sea? We still need to eat and Irish people won't uh, do this job. And I think if we break that down into that why aren't people applying for this job? Because the wages that are being paid aren't even minimum wage. And if you can't afford to pay your staff the living wage, you don't have a viable business. And you can't use the excuse of we need foreign um, workers because they're cheaper. Well, maybe you should be paying a better wage. And if you can't afford to do that, you need to restructure your business. Um, another piece that was said is that there's no one trained for this in Ireland. We literally have... Uh, hundreds of thousands of people who moved to Australia and who have come back who had to do their three months of fruit picking. My sister was one of them. Uh, so we have an, a full uh, barrage of people who are trained to do this specialist work that's underpaid. And it also goes to the question of if um, we are in a situation where we are reliant on our food and seeds and soil and all that things that are apple, apple, that word, where we are in a world that isn't working anymore. And these are our frontline workers. And we are talking so much about appreciating our frontline workers, like nurses who we were trying to, who Simon Harris was 
trying to take off strike by saying they'd be fired. Like these are our frontline workers. And if you can't afford to pay these frontline workers to pick the food that we are going to eat, well, that's a full issue with capitalism. Um, And if Keelings are allowed to fly 189 people into the country to work when we aren't, I know this is, I'm not allowed to move two meters, but why can't I open Tropical Popical then? If like, obviously now they aren't as important as needing to eat. But I suppose if you're going to break the rules, you, it needs to be universal. And I don't want to sound like one of those people. And that's the rules. But it just, overall, it just feels a bit wrong. So they can get I think it's some, Yeah, it goes to show how fucked the market is for all this stuff. Because presumably, like, you know, strawberries that are being flown halfway across the world are being picked for, you know, a quarter of nothing as opposed to half nothing that are then cheaper, that are then undercut you know, things that are being grown in the actual country that wouldn't have the largest carbon footprint, that has higher wages, that needs to undercut those wages to get people to pick them, that then needs to bring in people from another place. I mean, it's just the capitalism is just a basket case. But yes, don't let's see. I like strawberries though. Fave bits this week, Andrea. Hit me with your best shot. My fave bits are, I am very excited for Saturday night. This is my Saturday nights now. At 10.35, a Woman's Heart concert with the RTE Orchestra, which I believe you went to the recording with Maura O'Connell, Eleanor McAvoy and Wallace Bird. You were at that, weren't you? I did. I was. It was fantastic. It was one of your fave bits in the past. So I'm very excited to watch that on Saturday night with a sparkling water. Another fave bits. Now, this is a journey I'm going on at the moment. But last night I discovered that each house or address or business has its own air code. The way I took up air codes was that it was kind of like an area code for a couple of houses or a street or whatever. So it wasn't as impressive. Like a a postcode or whatever. A postcode, but more like a longer one. I was like, yeah, I don't want a longer one. I'm grand with my own one. Fine. Thanks a million. So maybe there was an issue with how it was rolled out. Maybe the communications of it wasn't great, but I ne- or maybe I just didn't tap into it and I never realized. But then I found out that it was like for each address. I was, my mind was gobsmacked. But then, and the reason it came up was someone wanted to write me a letter and they just wanted to put my name in their postcode. But then I found out today that on post do not go by, po- by air codes, which is very bizarre. What's the point of them then otherwise? But anyway, I'm still impressed that we have an air code for each address. Like, can you imagine the person who had to sit with the Excel document of signing these air codes to everyone? That would not be a buzz. No, no, no buzz. (laughs) No buzz. But what is a buzz is um, there is a film called The Eighth, which was made by three Irish women um, about the journey to the referendum for repeal. Um, And it was selected for its world premiere at Hot Docs. Um, whatever format that will take, they're just working on it now. But to be chosen to be included in the lineup is a huge deal. And I'm so delighted. Um, it was uh, a film that follows Alva Smith primarily um, and a few bits of Andrea in there as well. So I'm very delighted for the directors that their film is getting recognition because they put like four years of work into it. Um, and obviously COVID has fucked everything up for how that was going to be rolled out. So I hope it just gets the journey it deserves for them. And finally, uh, Murder Capital, my current fave band are doing, uh, Tim Burgess is doing this Twitter listening party where you listen to one piece of work, like an album. 
and every night he picks a different album and the band do it with them and Murder Capital are doing it on the 3rd of May at 8pm which is essentially when we'll be reviewing our lockdown situation so hopefully there'll be some good news coming from that and we'll also have Murder Capital. Una, what are your favourites? So my fave bits, uh, QOC, Queen of Captivity, which is um, part of Davina and Victoria's online um, digital drag show, uh, is the, 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 the drag race that we've been waiting for that we didn't know. The sight of queens, some seasoned, some very amateur, uh, performing in their kitchens and bedrooms around Ireland and competing for the Queen of Captivity crown is a joy. My other fave bits, I uh, started listening to a podcast from The Atlantic called Floodlines, which is about Hurricane Katrina, um, really well produced. So if you want to focus on another uh, disaster instead of the current nightmare that we're living in, uh, try that. Um, Unorthodox four-part series on Netflix, Manchester Star of the Show. I just really liked it. I thought it was a very nice show. Um set in Brooklyn and Berlin, two of my favourite places that I can't go to right now because of the plague. My other fave bit is Fiona Apple has released a new album called Fetch the Bolt Cutters. So that's always going to be amazing. Uh, Go Fiona Apple. Those are my fave bits. Now, what can we do this week, Andrea? So usually for our Corona episodes, we've been looking at what you can do virtually online, uh, Zoom shows, classes, etc. And do you know what? I just decided that NO, we're moving away from that. And this week, we're going to focus on what we can do to be present and in the moment. And as I I kind of mentioned about passengers when I was watching that, there was a quote in it that says, you can get so hung up on where you'd rather be that you forget to make the most of where you are. And I know that I was definitely trying to like recreate party vibes sitting around my laptop having a booze and it just got so depressing that when the when you just turned off your computer you were just sitting in your house drunk and like it's just not my vibe I love partying for many reasons and they are the connection and the adventure and all that that just doesn't happen in front of your computer screen and it's not just the partying but like the amount of people who are spending so much of their time on their phones and at their screens, it's just not good for your mental health. So I made a decision that I was going to go on the quarry drive and that I was going to appreciate the moment I was in, whatever that looks like, and find the joy from that. So I've become very garden focused. I've become very chilled. I went here anyway. I'll go into some of the things that I've been doing, but uh, and w- another quote that really inspired me was uh, Matt, who is the the founder of Yoga Hub. He sent out a newsletter and he's like, I can understand that there's so much anxiety right now because everyone feels that the future is, so, is now so uncertain. And his point is, was it not always uncertain? You never knew what tomorrow may, may have brought. Um, and that uncertainty I suppose that's always been there gave me a lot of solace um and I I just as much as I've always been very much of that you just have to live with in the day you're in and appreciate that this if this is your last day make it your best day even with whatever restrictions are in place 
So with that in mind, I have cut out Zooms or as made them as minimal as possible. Obviously, there's a lot to be said for seeing people's faces and um, that you can't normally see. So, but I've been cutting out the kind of like as the extracurricular Zooms, focusing on being in the moment and stop trying to reach for and recreate what you can't have and instead embrace what's available to you right now. So as part of that, exploring the quarry dry life, like like I know a lot of people are turning to booze as a crutch and that is totally understandable and whatever gets through this, amazing. But then is there a lot of other negative sides? Obviously, I talked about quarantine hangovers in the past, but the anxiety that comes from drinking and I know like maybe everyone doesn't drink the way I do, but if I have one drink, I want to have four more. And the anxiety that was coming from that was just making it not good for my life um so maybe have a think about the quarry dry life and una you've got a hangover today and you said you were jealous of the quarry dry life correct well i i think i have like an unjust i just want to put it in context here in case my mom's listening to this that i have a very unjust hangover because i had two margaritas like that's literally what i had so i think hangovers or the imp should i say the impact of alcohol consumption previous evening has seems to have a much more heightened effect in the pandemic. It really does. So things that I have been focusing on, and obviously this is just uh, my little thing, but really focusing on gardening and growing shit and cutting stuff back, it really brings you back to being very grounded and focusing on the cycle of life. I feel like I am getting very hippie in this, but whatever. Um, Embracing lounging and sleeping. There's been such like a kickback, thank God, on you need to learn more skills, blah, blah, blah. No, you don't. Um, I have really been enjoying napping. I went for a little nap the other day after my lunch, which I had quite late in fairness, and I went for a nap of five and I had loads of work to do that evening. Slept through for 14 hours till 7am the next day, but just going with it. Embrace the sun that is around and have a little sunbathe and get that vitamin D into you start cooking. Writing letters is really lovely. And James Cavanagh had a gas writing letter tutorial-esque thing um, on his Instagram the other day, which I thought was very entertaining. But the joy of getting something in real life right now in your post box can't be underestimated. There's nothing better than the feeling of touching something and reading something and it not feeling like just a throwaway message that's been done on uh, WhatsApp or whatever. And I know there's a lot of value in digital messaging, but there's also a lot of joy to be found in writing letters and receiving letters. Um, also signing up to volunteer with alone, they need people to call um, older people. So it doesn't necessarily have to be an in real life visit, um, but there are some uh requirements for callers, um, phone call to, you get assigned a person and then you call that person maybe three times a day so that you can be connecting with humans whilst not being, whilst physically distancing. And Una has snuck in Robin's Disco on Friday on Insta. What's that? Yeah, just a little, Robin is streaming some live performance slash disco slash DJ set or something on Friday night. So check that out on Instagram. Oh, what is the even deal? though we're saying oh, not on. to be on screens, but also Glitterbox are doing a virtual festival, which I'm going to put on to have as my soundtrack of the day without a screen life. So there you go. So that's just my little so, tips of namaste life. I love that. What's the deal? 
We know it by now. What is it? Keep your distance. Keep washing your hands. Yeah. Keep your sneezes contained. Keep yourself at home. Keep a mask on. If you have one. Keep a mask on if you're going out and interacting. Mask for mask. Mask for mask. And finally, here's a tuna chicken roll. I have been very heavily influenced by Una's Cooler Jets playlist on Spotify. I would highly recommend it. When there's a hazy sunny day and you don't want, like all my sound, all my music is like really upbeat, high energy stuff. So it was really nice to be in the garden, staying away, planting shit and just enjoying the hazy music with all uh, a more, um, a slower tempo of music. And with that, I was inspired to go back to a song that really inspires a hazy sunshine day. And it is Follow the Light by the Dungeon family. And I think there's a message in the title as well, to follow the light right now. And while it might feel that darkness is coming in many directions, that the light, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. Namaste. Namaste. Uh, So I've been Una. I've been Andrea. Um, that was, uh, the government that no one wants. And this has been United, United Ireland. Ireland. Oh, United Ireland. Yeah. We did it. We got it. <laughs> uh, we'll see you soon for our upcoming bonus episode project. That is very much going to cool your jets. Love you all. Peace you know, out. They use our music to get high. They use our music to get by. Right. Cause another nigga done did it In and out of style Like another African penis Says you look to split it Follow the two commitments Man, man, stand, third set But can you stand it? Sit down Follow the light.
salt of the earth, so rich supremacy be partially profound as the very power that sent me. When God said he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, I thought he meant me. Jesus is my older brother, evidently. Experiment me, that the complexity collapse upon contently. Life is but a dream, you roll your boat gently. It's cool to have a bitly, I want a bitly. Get up on the west, know my presence permanently. If you want your mind blown, look where all I'm on. Follow the line. <laughs> Five points. Uh, uh, uh. Break.